before Suzanne uh, reads our scripture for this morning, I wanted to say something about these passages. The first four chapters in Genesis uh, depict the beginning story of human life and God's creation of our universe. And so the first chapter focuses on sort of a summary of how, of how creation came into existence. Chapter 2 looks like yet another creation story, but it's just telling it in a different way with a little more detail. And then chapter 3 is the story of humanity's disobedience or revolt against God. And you know the story of, of their temptation to eat of the fruit in order to become like God. And then they're expelled from the garden and, and um, no longer living in the presence of God on a, on a daily basis. And now we get to chapter 4 where um, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel, and the... What's gone wrong with Adam and Eve seems to continue now in the narrative of the relationship between um, Cain and Abel. And so let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. <clears throat> In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit from the ground, and Abel, for his part, <clears throat> brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, his brother Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, 
it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. In this sermon series, uh, we're addressing what it means to be human. We've begun with the biblical claim that we're created beings made in the image of God. And we consider that image to have three dimensions to it. The first is that we're created with the capacity to know and relate to God, which was the essence of Kent's sermon last week. A relationship with God then is essential if we are to know who we are um, and our understanding of our role and place in this world. The second uh, dimension of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we're made as social beings. We are interrelated and connected to one another, which is today's message. And third, we are made as God's representatives on this earth, entrusted with responsibility for God's creation, which will be Emily's sermon next week. From today's text, we learn we humans were created as male and female, and that together, together, we reflect God's image. We're not self-made, we're not isolated individuals or independent beings. Creation did not make itself. To be made in the image of God means that life itself is a gift. In Genesis 2, we read, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a human soul or a living soul. We're not merely summoned into existence by some divine fiat as if God just called us out from the earth, but rather we're given our existence as a gift of love in order that we may respond to the Creator's love with gratitude and a sense of responsibility and obedience. We've been summoned to a life of responsible love toward God and toward one another. Listen how theologian Paul Jewett explains it in his book, Who Are We? Our Dignity as Humans. Such love toward God and neighbor is not simply a desirable attribute of our existence as human. It is rather the very essence of our existence. Our being and responsibility is fulfilled in our being with and for others in love. First, the divine other, who is our maker, and also the human other, who is our neighbor. 
While sin has turned our love of God and neighbor into a selfish love that rebels against God and exploits our neighbor, it cannot utterly destroy the responsible relationship to God and neighbor given us in and by creation. In other words, though the image of God in us is marred, it is not destroyed. It is part of who we are. So that sense of desire for God and that sense of care for and responsibility for our neighbor is, is, is part of our identity. It's part of our essence. Our sense of being in this world includes a sense of belonging, belonging to God and to one another. And we live in the shadow of this greater reality. We are, not made part, we are made part of one another, and we need each other if we're to fulfill our intended purpose. Even our language and our communication is a matter of disclosing of the self to another and the placing of ourselves at the disposal of others. Such fellowship, flawed as it is by self-interest, is still the essence of who we are made equal partners to share and experience life together. As a pair, Adam and Eve must answer to God when they disobey God's instructions. It may be a human trait to find fault and blame another, but it may, it may be truer to our nature to actually share the blame. Yesterday, Katie received a Mother's Day card from one of our two grown children. And on the outside, I knew it was trouble when she laughed when she read it, and then she handed it to me. Normally, I have to ask to read the card, but she handed it to me immediately. And on the outside, it read, My therapist says it's not all your fault, Mom. And then you open it up, and it reads, Dad messed me up a bunch, too. <laughs> yeah. What a waste of words. It could have been very affirming to, <laughs> to her. Instead, it had to get a dig in at dad. In Genesis 2, there's a second version of the creation story, which describes the, the creation of man and then the creation of woman in what some have interpreted as derivative or subordinate, that woman is made from Adam's rib. But even in this passage, God concludes that it's not good for man to be alone, that to complete creation of humanity, it was necessary to create woman so the two could be together. And upon seeing the woman, Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We were created to be in relationship to one another. Wherever then we see expressions of superiority or domination, it's important for us to know that such expressions are not true to our created order, to our created existence. It's not what God intended. Because we're made in God's image, every human being bears a mark of, of God and the life of God, which means every human life has worth, has dignity, has value, and has beauty. 
According to Scripture, humanity has its origin in the Word of God in a way that no other creature does. Psalm 8, which praises God as Creator, celebrates humanity as God's crowning achievement. What are human beings that you are mindful of them, writes the psalmist. Mortals that you care for them, yet you've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. There is no higher view of who we are as humans than this. And from it derives the basis for all human rights. Every person has rights according to Scripture. Together, Adam and Eve share in their disobedience and in the consequence of their rebellion against God. Then we come to the story of Cain and Abel, and that shows that things continue to go wrong as a result of our revolt against God. The first human act in Genesis was an act of disobedience. The second act is an act of murder. Like father and son, Cain was susceptible to an impulse, what we call sin, described in this passage like a predatory animal waiting to pounce upon its prey. The story speaks to a deep fracture in our lives, which is the breakup of community and social interconnectedness. God intended for us as humans to look out for each other, to care for each other. The significance of this reality is reflected in Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? And it's written in such a way that all of us as the readers can answer, duh, yes, of course. Like any good parent, we want to say, what were you thinking? That never goes very, very far. It's not really a good question to ask. What this story teaches us is that dignity belongs to everyone with a human face. And the ability to do harm or violence is in all of us. And we have to confront our, this, uh, this inclination to evil because it lies at our doorstep. Even as sinful people who fall short of the glory of God and despite our failure to attain the moral ideal, we have not lost our dignity as humans. Therefore, says Calvin, no one can be injurious to his brother without wounding God himself. Or as Tim Stafford observes in God's Justice Bible, the mistreatment of any human being is a personal affront to our Creator because every human bears God's image. And yet we know human history is the story of humanity's inhumanity toward one another, whether in the form of tribalism, nationalism, racism, sexism, slavery, xenophobia, human trafficking, economic inequality, apartheid, unjust hierarchical systems, you could go on and on and on. Each of these social constructs reflects an encounter in which the human other is defamed, denigrated, and abused. Out of fear, out of prejudice, 
and self-serving interests. The other is not viewed or respected as a person made in God's image because that individual is not viewed as a person at all, but rather an object. The encounter leads to alienation rather than fellowship and so destroys the humanity it was meant to fulfill. When we impugn the dignity of our neighbor, we offer an affront to our Creator whose work we call into question and threaten to destroy. It's for these reasons I was so struck recently by the interview of Kimberly Endicott. You may remember her, the American tourist who was kidnapped while touring a Ugandan wildlife preserve and taken hostage for ransom. She recently gave an interview to CBS This Morning co-host Gail King. She spoke of the five-day ordeal as terrifying um, and, and tried to describe it almost like a, um, the way you would describe sound going, uh, going away. Just this sense of everything that you rely upon and, and expect is no longer true. Both she and the guide were, were taken captive and they were marched across the border into the Dominican Republic of the Congo in early April. She recalled they stopped and she looked up in the sky and saw the most beautiful sky, she said, I had ever seen in my life. So then she decided to use it to connect with her captors. I became aware of humanizing myself to them and said, look at the sky. We don't have anything like this at home. She pointed out the Milky Way to them. And she said it became her mission to be human with them so that not only would they see her humanity, but it would help her to see theirs as well. She spoke of dropping to the ground in exhaustion and yet told by her captors to get up only to find that they had made a tent for her out of tarps and a mosquito net. I thought, why are they taking such good care of me? The more she talked with these men, she began noticing they drank water from the hole in the ground, but they gave her bottled water. She ended up feeling compassion for them, saying, how could I not? Because... That's their life. It's not really above living like an animal. If I survive this, I have a life to go back to. But that's their life. That does not condone what they did, not even close. After five days of negotiation, a ransom was finally paid and Endicott and her guide were freed. Even in captivity, she was able to find humanity in these men and came to see them not only as her captors, but also her protectors. They could have sold me to a different group. It could have been so much worse than it was. What does it take for us to see the humanity in someone else? 
to appreciate the image of God in another, even when that other intends to do us harm or intends to use us and abuse us in some way. One of the most memorable of C.S. Lewis's essays is entitled, The Inner Ring. He describes our common desire to be accepted within the inner ring of whatever group it might be, whether it's a, for him it was a, a group of, um, of academics and a society to belong to that he was not a part of. And he says that to feel excluded or out of it is miserable. And I think this is precisely what happened with Cain. He wasn't angry at Abel as much as he was angry at God. The desire to be in can make you say things you would not otherwise say and not say things you probably should say. We see this all the time where, where someone has taken a posture or position of strength or use of power and it's, it's done to the detriment of others and we could be a voice to say this is wrong, but we find ourselves wanting to fit in and we say nothing. This to desire to be on the inside of whatever group we aspire to affects all our relationships. And I would say affects us and wounds us deeply. Edwin Markham, the 19th century poet, wrote a book, I mean, wrote a poem called Outwitted. To me, it's the essence of the gospel. Especially when you think of how people were, um, in Jesus' day were constantly trying to, to form lines of demarcation of who was considered in and who was considered out. Who was pure, who was holy, who was, um, who was not contagious. Who helped someone get closer to God and who actually brought you further away from the presence of God. Edwin Markin wrote this, He drew a circle that would shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. And we drew a circle that took him in. As Christians, we believe Christ has restored our fellowship with God and our neighbor. And through the Spirit's gifting, we are empowered to actually carry out the love that God asks of us, love toward God and love toward neighbor. Even so much love toward enemy as Jesus instructed of us. He calls us to live out this relationship in a community of love. And so we earnestly seek to practice mutual respect and honor based on the dignity and the worth of one another. The real test is how we treat a newcomer, a stranger, or someone who is an immigrant who doesn't belong. Can we include such a person? Can we respect and love such a person? 
can we say, you're important to me, you matter to me, because you matter to God. Amen.